Welcome to The Signal Podcast, the podcast that raises your frequency. I'm Maury, purpose guide and founder of a transformation consultancy called 822 Group. I left my career as an executive at a global PR firm to live my purpose, helping leaders and businesses realign with their own purpose by reconnecting with their intuition. Through this work, I've really become a student of people's stories. You know, the things we tell ourselves that hold us back. And by accepting my own intuitive gifts, I've helped countless people recognize the power of their intuition and reconnect to their higher self. Hello, my love. Hi. I am so excited to have you. I know this is a little bit feels weird because we talk like this every day, but Heaver, you are on my podcast and we're going to talk about all things fear and intuition. I'm just so happy that you agreed to do this. Thank you. I'm so incredibly happy to, to be here too. And it's true that we have conversations like this every week and many times a week. <laughs> that, so we'll see what it's like to do it with the knowledge that it will be listen to but i i feel just like yeah like the these conversations that we have have been so totally life-changing for me and so even if like one or two or three or a million people get to hear it yes that's true and let me just make sure that everyone knows who we're talking to this is my friend and beautiful beautiful person and soul, Cyrus Denham, author of A Year Without a Name, and uh, just such an eloquent writer and creative person. And I just feel so blessed to have you in my sphere and that I get to share you with all of my listeners. So again, thank you for doing this. So Cyrus, let's just get right into it. Just ignore the mics. Let's pretend like this is a conversation that happens weekly. Um, you know, one of the things that you and I talk a lot about that this podcast is about is really clearing the white noise of fear so that you can tune into the radio signal of intuition. And I think that what's been so fascinating about our talks and that I relate to is that we really delve into family stuff, childhood stuff, you know, stories that I say creates a lot of this white noise. I'd love it if you could just share, you know, as you look back on maybe the last few months where we've been doing this kind of intuitive work together what is your biggest realization about that white noise, if you will, for you? Yeah. So I've always been a very verbal person um, and someone who's really good at talking, supposedly someone who's really good at talking about my feelings, what I'm going through, kind of seemingly being really vulnerable with those around me, making people feel let in. Um, and I think one of the one of the maybe tools that I came up with to foster connection with other people and also keep people at bay in certain ways was to have these stories about myself. Like mm. I'm this way. I'm afraid of this. I'm not good at that. I'm someone who's capable of this, but not capable of that. I live with this type of anxiety or this type of suffering. And so when we first became friends and also started talking about these themes, I would make these pronouncements to you about the type of person that I was. Right. And you'd be like, hold up. <laughs> Why are you saying that? Yeah. You'd be like, first off, I don't even think that's true. Secondly, 
what does it mean to continue to repeat it? What story are you putting into the world and making real through this repetition? And one of the things that you pointed out to me and that we started immediately working on was really pausing, looking at these stories and asking myself, is this me or is this someone else? Is this actually who I am or is this something that stuck to me or that I took on because of the world that I live in or the people that I've been around? Mm. So one place that I really saw that was with certain fears I had or stories I had about my own inadequacies or places where I felt like I wasn't capable of taking risks or um, moving towards my desires. Mm. And I think, you know, one way that you talk about them is these limiting belief systems that we have about ourselves. And so we really started kind of going deep into the DNA of those stories and looking back at the beginning. When do I first remember having this narrative about myself? What's the first time I remember feeling like I was so afraid of something that I, that I couldn't do it. And we can get more into the specific examples of what those were, but just broadly, I feel like I started to really ask myself, when did I, when did I take the story on and internalize it as a true fact about who I am? And if I really, really pause and tune into my intuition and the deepest part of myself and my own personal power, do I actually think this is me or do I think I just started telling myself it was me? Um, And maybe it's someone else's fear and maybe it's not even a specific person's fear. Maybe it's like the world's fear or society's fear or all of these things that kind of get stuck to us. And that was, that was language you gave me. It's like these things get fixed to us. It's almost like they're stuck on our skin and we don't even know that there are these things attached to us that aren't actually who we are. Right. And how do we do the work of shedding those stories? Um, And what was amazing is that I feel like a lot of that, that shedding started to happen really quickly in ways that I was really surprised by. Yeah. Well, and I think that it really comes when you're ready. And I, you know, I tell people this all the time is we're not going to meet until you're ready or we won't start doing the work until you're ready. And I think that with you, what's so fascinating is it's right there at your fingertips. This, you know, we do a lot of visualization together about seeing your higher self, going back and spending time with your younger self, taking, you know, them on walks and you get there so quickly is that something that you had practiced in the past or, you know, was it new to you when I started doing these kind of visualizations with you? How did you access this so quickly? It was something I'd heard about, but not something I'd ever done. And it's so interesting that I, to me that I hadn't done it before, because as soon as we started doing that work, I really do feel like it came so fast. You, there was one week where you were like, you know what, why don't you just take, think, take yourself at 13 or 14, yeah, 12 or 13 on a walk. Uh, Cause I was dealing with some like really negative self-talk, some really cruel thoughts towards myself. And you said, there's some part of you that's trying to protect you right now. You need to go talk to this person and say, what's up? What are you so afraid of? What is it about my life right now? That's making you clamp down with so much fear and so much judgment and so much harshness. Yeah. And I was a little like, well, I don't, how, what do you mean? How am I going to be like talking to myself in the mirror? <laughs> you know, I, so I tried to just like pause, close my eyes, visualize myself at this age. And then ended up just like you said, going on a walk and just imagining that this other version of me was walking next to me. And 
it was amazing how much came through it it felt like I was watching a movie or something with a pre-written script like there was so little blur between me and this younger version of myself and I could hear the things that she and I'm using she because I think you know there's a lot of complexity to identity but that version of me was living inside the identity of a young girl and that I think that really shaped that person right um but there was so yeah there I could just hear her so clearly um and it's also really interesting I think you know everyone's different but one of the adaptive strategies or coping mechanisms that I took on and also something about myself that I really love is I'm really caring and nurturing and I'm really prone towards orienting around other people's needs and Mm. other people's other people's needs and emotions and like at a very young age if I noticed distress in myself the way I dealt with that was to turn it around and whoever was across from me how are you feeling what's going on for you what do you need what is that I mean that is such a deflection I think that we do as people who are caregivers, right? Or, you know, I use the word empath to describe myself. And you and I have really related on this topic of being little empaths with all these adults around you who have all these complex feelings that you're feeling. And then in order to make your experience feel safer, you take care of them so that you, so that they're okay. So that actually in turn, you can be okay. Is that something that you felt like you did at a young age? I mean, it's interesting, just even the word signal that that we're talking about today, because I feel like my earliest memories and experiences of a signal would be entering a room of adults. And I was around adults a lot. I was a young person who mostly, my parents had a really active social life, a ton of friends. I was often the only child in a room of, you know, dozens of a hundred adults. That was a, That was my comfort zone. And I would enter a room and feel like, I literally couldn't hear because of the sound of everyone in the room's needs and emotions. Like, like the dial, like I would just look around a room and be like, I mean, I didn't have these words, but it'd be like fear, anxiety, comparison, inferiority. So like, like just seeing this like wild spider web of all of the grownups in the rooms, deep, deep pain. (laughs) Um, and I think it scared me so much and that made me feel so much discomfort that the the quickest way I knew to deal with that discomfort was to just give care and be a listener yeah. um, and, and, and end up in these situations where I was supporting people through processing their emotion at such a kind of oddly young age. And they get addicted to it. I mean, would you say that that is the dynamic for you even now? In your family? Yeah, and so much in so many parts of my life. And it's the dynamic with my family, with my and social spaces. It's it's the place and it and I don't want to put that on other people. Yeah. Because that's what's comfortable for me. And it's a dynamic that I recreate. Yes. And part of working with you is trying to rewire that dynamic. Mm. Um, because it's not something that people I think it's different when you're dealing with a child. Right. But I think at this phase, it's like no one's forcing me to be in this role. That's my, that's my comfort zone. And, and of course, early on, you know, I was really, and I'm sure you had this too. I was really praised for a lot of this. I was constantly praised by adults for being mature and grounded and wise and a deep listener. And 
So I started to really take that on as like the story for my own value. Yes. Um, and, and really there was, I think a lot of confusion between what is like my gift. Yes. And then what is something that I'm, that I can do that I don't necessarily want to do. And it's not to say that they can't be both at the same time. Cause this is an incredible ability or skill that we both have yeah. to like draw people out and make them feel safe and really tune into other people's frequency, yes. which I think is what it is, is that I have a really deep capacity to tune into other people's frequency. The issue is that I honed that skill so much that I often forgot Right. That there was that I had my own frequency that I to pay attention to. Do you feel like you had a relationship with intuition, your higher self, as we now know them at a young age? Can you recognize that intuitive voice? Well, I think that one of the stories you've been helping me let go of is this idea that I wasn't tuned into my own intuition. And rather than repeating that and repeating that, I'm trying to look back and see all of the ways that I was. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of that was really private and secret, you know? And I think one thing that we've been talking a lot about is how, like, if I ever doubt my own intuition and I ever doubt my own ability to move towards what I know I need to move towards, I have this incredible reminder, um, which is that I was able to transition and that I was able to know something about the body that I needed to be in right. and move towards that when I had basically been given no pathway or support or um, room to think that that was possible. And I, I see myself as a young, I remember myself as a young person knowing these really deep things about myself, about my sexuality and my gender and recognizing that something was going on where what I was being told I was didn't match how I felt. Yes. And that, what is that if not intuition? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you and I have been talking about how, you know, I think we talked about how I have a lot of people in my circle that does this, that does this work with me that, you know, identify as transgender, queer, non-binary. And I told you that I think it's almost easier because you've had to identify your magic younger, right? To make sure that you're true to who you are. And I think so much of this work around aligning with your higher self is about letting go of who people told you to be. When you had to do that at a really young age and you described, I mean, I think when we talk about little you, we do talk about, you know, a female bodied individual. How was that in terms of how did you negotiate this truth, this higher self telling you, no, you're this, when maybe your family or society wanted you to continue to be acting in the body that they, you know, saw? Well, I think as a young person who didn't have all the information that I have now, there was just a lot of compartmentalization. So there was like external life, and then there was the world that existed inside my mind. So I could be moving through the world as someone who people treated like a little girl. And, but then in my head, I saw someone completely different. Yeah. And in, from some angles, there's something sad about that. But in another way, it's actually a really beautiful, powerful, adaptive strategy and magical capacity to manifest another reality in your mind. Yes. And my imagination, and I see that now with the 
a lot of the work we do around visualizing other versions of myself um, and doing healing work through visualization is that my imagination was so robust and so colorful and I could be existing in the world and then have an entire other reality and another track inside my mind that was full of color and dialogue and sound and language. And I managed the dissonance of day-to-day life by having a world that I spent much of my time with where there wasn't this dissonance. Right. Um, Did I share that with anyone? Definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that also, I think in, in taking care of them probably felt like too much to put on them. Yes. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, I think what that started to do was that I just, a lot of emotion was experienced in that other realm as well. So I had, why would I share what I need or what Mm. I feel with other people when I can manage it and move through it, I think in this private, but robust and abundant reality that exists inside my mind. Well, and you gave me the best parenting advice anyone's ever given me. Seriously, because I talked to you a lot about my tween, you know, she's about to be 13 and you have said to me, the best thing you can give her is her privacy, Mm. which is easier said than done when we're taught as parents to have a lot of fear about, well, what are they up to? And what's happening with this device in their hand? And you really helped me ease into, she's turning into a person who needs to figure herself out. And you constantly being all up in there is almost robbing her of that adventure. Well, it's so, I mean, I had, there's lots to say about my family and ways that it was difficult as with all families. And also I had, overall extremely nurturing and open-minded parents who made many efforts to know what was happening inside of me, even to the point of like direct and explicit questions about my sexuality. Gender wasn't really on the table at that time. I don't think that parents really knew how to ask about that, at least not the world that my parents were in. But I, I have these distinct memories of my mom saying things to me like, you know, if you're gay, it's okay. Every time she said that, I like shut another metal door Uh. (laughs) to the private world. How could she know that? That's, I think, to me, what's so scary about having a child is that no matter what you say and do, they still have to exist in the world, you know? And I was so full of shame that the possibility of this part of me being pointed out made me like bolster the hatch even more. Yes. Yes. I don't know how a parent is supposed to. Yeah. I mean, navigate through that. But, but, but this is what I mean about that being such good advice because it, it made her into a separate entity from me. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that parenting is so egoic and it's so about us. And you reminded me, this isn't about you. This is about her and what she needs to discover about herself. And I think, you know, how you do it is to let go a little bit and just let them know you're there. One of the things I do with her a lot from that advice is when she comes home and tells me something, I'll say, am I here to listen, solve this, or get involved? Oh, now we have a visitor. No, I love it. No. (laughs) So yeah, I think that that's really been pivotal. And I think had you not had that experience, then you wouldn't understand just how to guide other people there. So let me ask you a question, because I think that if I'm listening to this and, you know, I've either read your 
work or I know you. I'm wondering how did you break out of these limiting belief systems enough to, I mean, write a book, which is quite the endeavor. How did you bring yourself to tell your truth in that kind of memoir format? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I really appreciate that question because I feel like we're all constantly growing and changing and transforming. And I'm also very prone towards like constant internal transformation and rebirths. And that's the I'm really like afraid, I think, of emotional and spiritual stagnation. Uh, um, yeah. So when I read the book or think about it, I see all of the limiting belief systems that are present in that book. And I often don't pause to think about what I had to do to actually be able to write that book. Right. Um, so I really appreciate that question and an opportunity to reflect on the ways that I had to actually shed so many limiting belief systems to do it because I'm just thinking about how can I be even less held back yes. next time. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, um, it's about, you know, what I hear a lot of my clients tell me is like, I need to forgive this version of myself. And every time we go in to do that, the truth becomes, oh no, I need to be proud of this version of myself. That's what that I, version of me wants is for me to recognize you had to do this thing in this moment so that this, you know, future you could be here. It was one of the stepping stones, right? And writing this book from the vantage point you were at requires deep pride is what I'm hearing you say. And I, yeah, and I, I honestly think that the act of writing for me has often been a way of shedding a limiting belief system or moving out of one version of myself into another. Like writing is an act of manifestation. And part of that is because writing is a place where I get to imagine a new way of being and a new version of myself. And also sometimes in the act of describing things, they lose their power and they lose their hold on me. Like right. writing is how I process. Right. So it over the court, when I started writing that book, I didn't know a lot of what was going to happen to me over during the time that I was writing it. But in the time that I was writing that book, I actually made the decision to change my name and choose a new one to make these like medical shifts to my body that would help me feel more in alignment with it. I didn't know that I was going to do all those things when I started writing the book. Oh, wow. And I think that going deep down and back into a lot of my memories of my fears and desires and pivotal moments of shame or self-doubt just helped all of this be almost like exercised or yes. released. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like for me, writing is a way of actually moving through those stories. Cause I do think that sometimes when we, it's interesting, a lot of times when you and I are having conversations about things in my life, Maury will do this. You'll do this thing that at first starts to really annoy me, <laughs> which is go, <laughs> which is ask why, 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 Five times. And, no matter what, and keep on saying why. And I, every time I'm like, I don't have anything more to say, but there's always a deeper answer. And we always get to a place where you make me explain something to the point that I see that it's not real. Right. Right. Or it is real, but it's not as powerful as I think it is. Yes. Or the answer is like, there's four layers of justification and underneath it is what's really going on. And writing is one of the ways that I can do that for myself. Uh, you know, yeah, is describing things until they lose their power, or I see that they don't have, they're not as embedded in, in me as I 
as I believe them to be. Hey, Signal listeners. If you're listening to Signal and you're curious about how you can get in touch with your intuition to thrive and live your purpose, we have an amazing membership community called Society M. As a member of Society M, you will receive weekly video messages directly from me paired with custom-made exercises that are all designed to help you incorporate the lessons you're learning into your everyday life so that you can get back in touch with your signal and thrive by being connected to your higher self. You can check it out at morifontanez.com and please make sure to share it with anyone in your life that you think could benefit from making that connection too. Again, it's Society M and you can find it at morifontanez.com. Thank you for listening. I want you to help me describe this because I keep telling our listeners in these episodes that if you just manage the fear, not manage, but get into relationship with the fear, then you can start to dial down the white noise so you can hear the signal of intuition. But I would love for you to describe that experience in your own language. Like what the heck does that mean? Dial down the white noise, hear the signal. How does that work for you? At this phase in the work, of course, it's easier to do that with the support of a friend, with the support of you, that having someone there to help me understand, because what what happens to me when I get really afraid and anxious and overwhelmed by the other people in my life or like a deep narrative of self-doubt I have inside of me is that it's so loud that I, all the noise starts to blur and I can't figure out what's coming from where. Right. So it's like, I feel this cacophony of emotional overwhelm. And I don't know what's my fear. What's my intuition? What is my radical self-regard? What is my fear of disappointing others? What is other people's expectation of me? It's like, I like have blindfolds on and I'm in a surround sound symphony orchestra of like horrible screeching metal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And And that's your white noise. Just to be clear, that's how you're describing your white noise. There's a kind of emotional overwhelm saturation where I can't distinguish between my own like truth intuition and truth and my fear and also the my projected idea of the expectations and needs of other people or other people's demands. Yeah. So it's easier to do the work of parsing all that out with your support and with another and with friends. But I think I'm getting better every week and every month at starting to be able to do that on my own. And one of the primary things that helps me do that, and I don't always do this because it is so much harder than you would think it is, is actually just pausing, like literally just pausing. Mm. Because oftentimes when I'm in that headspace of overwhelm, I feel like I need to just do, I need to like move towards this person. I need to answer this text. I need to answer this email. I need to check everything off my to-do list. I need to just like try to get the feeling to go away through action. Yeah. And it that literally never works for me. Yeah. <laughs> um and the thing that actually works is if I just force myself to pause, close my eyes, sit somewhere peaceful, put all of my technology in another room, um, and try to just listen. And um, what is it, what does intuition 
feel like or sound like for you? How do you know it's that? Well, I literally hear, in order to hear intuition for me, I need to create the conditions to be able to listen. Okay. So I need to, so it's often like not being around other people, not being near technology, serenity, being in an environment that even momentarily makes me feel serenity. Yeah. So I really like to be outside. Yeah. So if I just go outside and sit somewhere where I can hear birds and hear wind. Yeah. It's instantaneous. It's, it's not, it's not, I need to go somewhere that where I can feel the outdoors. I need to have the noise of other people away from me. I need to close my eyes and pause. And I have visualizations that I do. So I have different, like, it's almost like characters or beings that I imagine. So there's some, depending on what I'm feeling or what my instinct is, sometimes I'll visualize myself as a young person or myself as a really old person. Uh. But I also will sort of, and some, I also sort of visualize like this other non-human being or entity that I often call in to care for me. Some people might call it a guardian or an angel or a higher power. There's a spirit guide. There's a lot of words you could use. Um, And I, I will actually just ask these different versions of me, what, what's up, what's going on? What do I need right now? We will just like, I'll try to just have an actual conversation or I'll just say, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed. I can't hear. I can't think. I don't know what I need, what's happening. Yeah. And I get really clear answers the answers aren't always like you need to do X, Y, and Z. Usually the answer is you need to sit, you need to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> stop talking to, for a minute. The answer yeah. is often like pause, stop doing, slow down. Like it's not like I'm getting some, you know, like six point plan presentation. <laughs> it's often about just clearing everything out and just being, it's about presence. It's about mindfulness. It's just about stopping. It's about acceptance. It's about trust. I always get answers that are less about doing and more about being. Do you talk to your family about this work? Like, do you, would you say, I visualize a being that is non-human and I ask it questions? Like, I don't talk to my family about it. And I also don't talk to that many friends about it. And why? Um, I guess I, I mean, I have some friends in my life who are really on this wavelength. Yeah. Um, it's a frequency thing, right? And I think I just trust that that we find one another and that we have these conversations with each other when we're ready to. Yeah. And I'm not particularly interested in having to encounter people's like paranoia and skepticism. <laughs> or and I, maybe I'm curious how you deal with that because this is like your work. Yeah. But this is a private part of my life and my healing and my creative practice. Yes. And if people ask about it, I'm super down to share, but I, I don't, it seems really disconnected from the particular work I'm trying to do of tuning into my own frequency and intuition to try to convince people of the value of things. I agree. I agree. I think that's exactly right because this is such an intimate process with yourself that, you know, to share it with someone is a really big deal. And I love your question about how I deal with it. You know, we talk about a lot, you know, I come from a really corporate background, right? Like I did crisis management and change management and, you know, strategic planning and marketing for 
corporations. And so it really feels crazy sometimes for me to say out loud the gifts that I have and the way that I actually want to help impact the world is by reconnecting them to their higher self. You know, it's like you don't say that in a boardroom. But I think that what I've learned through the help of some really amazing supportive people is that the more honest I am, the brighter my light shines and therefore the more people I can impact. And so I stay really focused on the purpose. This is why I, you know, hone in on purpose with people so much. It's like if you can understand your why, it becomes not personal. Like Mm -hmm. you're just a vehicle then that needs to do what you need to do to create the impact you have to create. And if I can remind myself of that, the, the shame falls away. But I have some indoctrination and some storytelling in me too that says, well, they're going to think you're crazy. <laughs> or like, what is this woo-woo stuff you're talking about that I have to let go of so that I can help even more people? Well, this is really, I think, key what you're saying, which is that I think one of the reasons I maybe don't organically bring it up or talk about it with everyone is because I know that because of how I take on other people's feelings, if I sense yes. people's skepticism or discomfort, yes. I'll start justifying it and trying to explain it in a way that will make them feel more comfortable. Yes. So if I can talk about something from a place of pride and joy and without letting my shame and my embarrassment and my need to make other people comfortable take over, I yeah. will. Yeah. But I have this feeling right now that in a lot of the work I'm doing with myself, it's like I'm I'm in the laboratory and everything is very fragile and bringing in the energy of feeling like I need to justify something to make another person comfortable isn't super conducive to what I'm trying such to do. That's a good point. That's such and a I, good point. And I do think that like, I believe that the the best advertisement for anything is just like living it joyfully and with purpose. Yes. And that trying to convince people of things is pretty much like a total bust and a dying art. Yeah. Oh my God. I love what you just said. I want to repeat that. The best advertisement for anything is living it joyfully and with purpose. Yeah. Like stop talking about it. Just go do it. Yeah. And, and like people, I'm like, if people see you growing and changing and transforming and like caring for others and caring for yourself, they're going to want a piece of whatever yeah. you have what do you going. Have there? Yeah. <laughs> like, and and trying to convince someone of something from a place of shame and doubt and embarrassment makes people want to run in the other yeah. direction. Well, welcome to the diet industry or the beauty industry, right? It's like, how can I make you feel as badly about yourself as possible? And it's it, it, that something is changing. It used to work. But I think people are waking up a little and it's not working, this this place of shame. So we talked about, you know, limiting belief systems and and breaking that down to get through to the other side of the signal of of your intuition. And thank you for being so specific because I think hearing me say it one way and hearing you say another way is important for people. And I keep saying it's unique and you have unique circumstances that make it harder or easier. You talked about coming out. You talked about understanding who you were just in terms of your gender and your body and how that created shame or didn't and how you had to access truth. Um, Let's talk a little bit about family systems. I mean, I think that what's unique for you is that you had this proximity to fame as you were growing. How does that influence your limiting belief systems? Were there any stories you told yourself because of that proximity in your family? This is such a deep question and one that we've talked about so much. Um, And I want to try to like phrase it the right way because I think a lot of this, you know, 
a lot of this messaging for me and for all of us started really early. So I, as in, in my adult life, I've had a proximity to a very visible, very acute, very extreme type of fame. As a young person, I, for many reasons, I grew up in New York. My parents were artists. I, grew, I went to a fancy private school. I was around people with a lot of money. I was around people with a lot of cultural power. And really, my early experience of life was really shaped by things like wealth, whiteness, um, power, mm. uh, elitism, mm. things that sound really negative. Um, and one of the things I started noticing really early on was that all of these people that I was surrounded by, so many of the adults that I was surrounded by who had things that I was told were the things that one was supposed to strive for more than anything else seemed truly miserable and to truly hate themselves and others. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, this is something that's really tricky and confusing to talk about, especially with the like political language that a lot of us have been exposed to, but there is like real, a real spiritual void and really deep suffering, even among people who are like highly resourced and highly privileged. Sure. And you know that better than anyone because you've like done the deep work of trying to actually heal with people who have like such inexplicable amounts of money and power. And I don't even, I'm not saying that in a way that's necessarily critical of those people. I'm, I'm just like, we live in a world that tells us that we're supposed to want certain things, yep. but the attainment of those things doesn't actually heal suffering. Right. Um, and the suffering grows and then there's shame right. with that because you're supposed right. to be happy. And then we're in a world of people, so many people suffering in so many different ways. Um, so I think that like, I started to make associations really young about the relationship between, for example, like fame and recognition and then loneliness and isolation and like a constant hunger for more or the ways that I started to associate money with like greed and emptiness. Like yeah. I made a lot of these connections. And um, what did that, how did that then manifest in your life? In what ways did it hold you back? Well, I think what's interesting is that I started to tell myself a lot of these stories, but also because of the world that I grew up in and the ways that I was taught to feel valuable, that didn't mean that I didn't also desire those very same things that I was afraid of, which which created and has continued to create so much discord and dissonance inside of me. You're at a cross, seen, I mean, it's a cross current happening. And I've really seen that manifest as like a lot of judgment. So I think that I tend to feel that when people really, really harshly criticize and judge individuals and specific people, it's generally a window into their own personal ambivalence. Absolutely. And it's generally a window into their own pain around their own like complicated desires. Yep. So one place that I would see that manifest for me is really harsh, critical judgment of people who organize their life around wanting more um, recognition or fame or visibility or money. And then also envy right? or also a feeling of wanting those things, but then hating myself for wanting the thing that I supposedly hated. And it would create these like cyclical feedback loops inside of myself where I couldn't find my way out of the sort of externalized judgment, self-judgment nexus. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the work that we've been doing to get to a place where I can even actually like locate what it is that I want. Desire. 
and desire yeah. is starting to parse out like why do I believe that someone making money necessarily means they'll have a like that they that they will live a life formed by greed why do I believe that someone being recognized for their work necessarily means that they will be lonely and isolated yeah because you like, talked about if I can say yeah. you talked about when that book came out how little attention you wanted around it which is so counterintuitive to promoting a book Right. And I think, I think that some part of me really wanted a lot of attention and really wanted a lot of praise. And then another part of me was really scared and really self-sabotaging. Yeah. Because you associated fame with isolation. And what that created was a recipe for me to be deeply, truly unsatisfied because the, no matter what happened, I created a situation where if the book got a ton of attention, a ton of praise, I was going to feel really afraid and really disgusted by myself. Yeah. If it didn't get any attention, I was going to feel like I failed and hadn't gotten what I wanted. And so I don't even feel like I was in a position to clearly understand how it existed in the world because I was operating from a place of, and like creating the conditions for really deep dissatisfaction because of my own ambivalence. Right. Um, I think also we all, depending on how we're raised, the worlds we grew up in, what we moved through, are given narratives about what success looks like, yes. you know? Yes. And so the narrative that I got about what success looks like was external recognition and validation and like money. I'm not saying that that is, was said word for word by the adults in my life tasked with raising me, but that's what was modeled for me in the world around me. Right. So now I'm trying to do the work of understanding, like, I may not want those things. I also may want those things. The work is figuring out what is it that I want and how do I know what I want within the stories I was told about what success looks like. And everybody's raised in different communities and in different, like there's overarching societal expectations and norms for what success is. And then there's these really minute differences that have to do with our different cultural upbringings and our different access to money and power and resources. Like, I feel like the work we've been doing together is trying to come up with my own personal definition of what success means. And success, I'm using as an umbrella term for like purpose, meaning, yep. joy, yep. interconnectedness. Um, like there's all of these umbrella, these all of these terms that we've been trying to hone in on of like, what would a meaningful life look like for me? Yeah. And how does your intuition help with that? Well, I think honing my intuition and developing a relationship to listening to it helps me realize when an inadequacy or a desire or a longing or a feeling that I'm failing is actually just the result of an external story that I've taken on. Uh, so if it creates I'll be detachment. In a, it creates detachment yes. from the things that don't serve you. If I'm in a loop where I feel like I failed because X, Y, or Z thing didn't happen. I can actually pause and be like, do I really think I failed? Or am I just telling myself that I failed because of the story that got stuck to me at one point or another? Yeah. Like if I really truly tune into myself, is there an actual deep feeling of failure? And there usually isn't. That's the funny part (laughs) is that most of the, like, I'm like my my higher self never thinks I failed no, at anything. No. And <laughs> isn't it a, such a loving source? Isn't it constantly sending you love? I mean, it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's just like, I'm constantly doing great. Great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your biggest cheerleader. 
All right. So Cyrus, before I let you go, which I don't even know how this much time went by. I know. It's like this every time we talk. For people out there that are listening, that are feeling stuck by fear or that are feeling like, you know, they're resonating with these versions of you that you talk about that have told themselves so many stories that they're kind of paralyzed because they don't want to disappoint people or they don't want to fail. What's the one thing you want them to know? That it's so easy to focus on what isn't working and to focus on the ways that we're stuck and to focus on the ways that we're sad. And maybe this is naive, but I genuinely believe that even that no matter how stuck or sad we feel, no matter how stuck or trapped we are, that everyone has the ability to locate like one drop of like joy or personal power in something. Mm. And that one of the big shifts for me has just been trying to hone my attention towards like the one, the the fleeting thing that makes me feel a sense of joy or the fleeting thing that makes me feel that reminds me of my own like power and ability to like create and move towards the things that I want. Mm. So I feel like it's like we're constantly searching for these, for something that isn't there. And oftentimes there might be something there that you're not seeing that's right in front of you. Even if it's just like how good you feel when you like drink coffee in the morning, you know, just like really enjoy it. Yeah. That's been such a huge shift for me. I know it, it seems kind of it might sound kind of silly or small. No, it's I, it's follow the joy and it'll lead you to your personal power. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, yeah, I really do believe that. Yeah, I love that. That's really, I feel like, tangible advice, even if it's something small. I'm like, there must be one thing you like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No matter how miserable you feel, it's true. I do that. I, I mean, I, I struggle with anxiety and depression. And when I'm in that state of like really feeling depressed, I will just try to focus on, okay, this one thing, you know, or this one, just whatever, you're right, something small, just getting, you know, wrapping this blanket around me is bringing me joy right now. And I think that you're right. It's also about being present in that. Cyrus, you are literally such a light in my life. You're one of my favorite people. I'm so, so thankful that you came on to talk to me and that I get to keep talking to you every week. But I hope that um, the listeners really enjoyed this conversation and thank you for doing it. Thank you for everything that you bring to my life and also for letting me come on your podcast. I love you so much. Love you. Hey, Signal listeners. I am so excited to share that we are officially working on season two of Signal, and we have a surprise for you. We're switching up the format for season two so that you get to actually listen in on me coaching real people who are working through real life issues in each episode. And guess what? You have the opportunity to be featured if you're interested in a coaching session with me. All you have to do is head over to the link in our show notes to submit your name for consideration, and you could be on season two of Signal with me. Look for more on season two of Signal coming soon. You can find more from me on Instagram at Maury Fontanez and by visiting maurifontanez.com. 
This podcast is hosted by me, Maury Fontanez, and produced by Terra Firma Audio. I'd like to thank the talented team at Terra Firma, Casey and Jack, for being such amazing partners. Uh, our wonderful sound engineer, Jordan Newell, Lauren Hall, my amazing literary agent who's believed in my ability to talk about intuition, I think before I did, and my really amazing husband who is so supportive and trusts my guidance so that I trust my own guidance more and more, our amazing four kids for putting up with all of the intuition talk that happens in our home and my family back at home. Thank you all. I couldn't have done this without you. Thank you.